Good morning. I am Lauren Anders Brown, an independent documentary filmmaker. Being behind the camera in over 40 countries has resulted in hours, days, terabytes of footage. So much of what happens to make a shoe possible ends up on the metaphorical cutting room floor. Most of my editing used to take place in planes, trains, or whatever available coffee shop had a decent filter, single origin coffee, and always using the hashtag today's office. But now I am picking up the scraps, reviewing old interviews, and scrolling through my social media to give you a behind the scenes look at what it's like to travel, produce, film, direct, and record alone as my own correspondent. The year is 2018, and it's July in Jordan. Jordan is a country that is often referenced as the Switzerland of the Middle East. Not for its mountains, but known more for its neutrality in a region that is hard to come by. This would be my third time in Jordan. Arriving into the glassy airport always makes me feel as though I could be anywhere. It is also the same feeling I get on the long drive through the desert to the refugee camps. Flat, desert, desolation. Nothing worth watching outside the car window if I could stand the heat. The sun burning through the window gets so hot, I know what an ant feels like under a magnifying glass. As we got into the car and began the ritual, as I learned when I was in Jordan last time, of removing my field vest, putting the collar on the window, and then asking my colleague Clara to put the window up without catching my fingers. I still have all my fingers, by the way. And the vest blocks just enough of the sunlight to avoid those antsy moments in the car. We set off, meandering through the capital of Amman to the last petrol station before hitting the open desert, where we picked up the necessary supplies for the day, water and falafel. While gas stations in the U.S. are notorious for unappealing food options, I can attest falafel from a petrol station or gas station. In Jordan, fulfills my food requirements. Healthy, tasty, plentiful. Jordan is host to the largest Syrian refugee camp called Al-Zatari, where 80,000 Syrian refugees live and where I had filmed my first short documentary, Six-Year-Old Fears. This time, though, I would be going to the second largest camp, Azraq, where about 35,000 people live. But to be honest, my initial reactions made me wonder if anyone truly lives there. We approach the gate with the obligatory checkpoint and paperwork dance that reminds me visually of a very serious tango. The guard approaches the car, requires documentation and identification, and returns with a strong arm back saying we don't have the correct permissions to enter. We smile, trying not to feel like ants in the sun, and plead with him to look at the paperwork again. He looks at it once more and walks away, leading with the paper and therefore taking the lead in this dance. He comes back and agrees that we have permission to enter, but my equipment does not. So we'll have to leave and return when both my equipment and ourselves have permission to enter. Now it's our turn to lead this tango of entry, and after several steps forward and backwards, we convince them to allow us to enter 
and for me to keep my equipment under the condition I am not permitted to use it until they call us and say so. We say shukran, thank you in Arabic, and despite feeling annoyed at the power play, we're late for our meeting with the hospital staff. Unlike the bustling main road of Al-Zatari refugee camp, which is called Champs-Elysees, a play on words of the famous Parisian shopping street and Shams, which in Arabic means Damascus, Azrak felt as sterile as the hospital we were heading towards. Fences, gates, long empty spaces, rows of shelter made me feel almost like I was strangely at an Ikea. There were no main streets, no markets, no real signs of life. To me, it was no way to live. We arrive at the hospital and meet and greet the welcoming staff with some compulsory cardamom coffee, a ritual in Jordan I'm very fond of. The hospital is in a well-laid-out section of trailers and is extremely clean in contrast to the dust billowing everywhere outside of it. The maternity ward, though, definitely wins, with something else entirely. Stars and moons hung from the ceiling, the beds were laid with fresh seats and privacy curtains, and the doors between labor and delivery wards were covered in colorful pieces of paper with footprints on them of all the babies they had delivered every single one of them without either the mother or baby dying. Not a statistic many Syrians would imagine considering what made them flee to Azraq in the first place. The United Nations estimate that to date, about 400,000 Syrians have died due to the conflict, and 5 million more have become refugees like those in Azraq. By the time I finished my coffee, our phones rang with the wonderful news that I was granted permission to use my equipment, just as a woman was going in for laparoscopic surgery for a prolapse. This is an amazing procedure that repairs the woman's pelvic floor, which if left untreated, allows for the pelvic organs to bulge down through the vagina. It's not life-threatening, but it severely affects women's quality of life with pain or pressure in the lower back or pelvis or both. Painful sex constipation, and urinary problems and leaking, which can lead to social impacts of stigma due to the smell and other cultural isolation. I had no idea this could happen to me as a woman before I was about to film this, nor how many women around the world suffer from it. About 9% of women worldwide will have a prolapse. The surgeon performing these operations, Dr. Hamza and I, got to chatting while he was scrubbing up for the procedure. You did! So I guess you're okay. good now. Good. Um, so can you tell me your name, your job, and where you work? Yeah, I'm Dr. Hamza Lamouche. I am a consultant obstetrician and gynecologist. Uh, I am the general hospital manager in Azra Camp Hospital, IMC Azra Camp Hospital. And what is the new equipment you've received from ECHO? Uh, we receive equipment uh, which is called laparoscopy, hysteroscopy, uh, and cystoscopy. This uh, equipment help us in providing uh, uh, better improved service, uh, mainly uh, gynecological service for the women here in, in the camp. Uh, we also can use them for general surgery. As you know, we have also general surgery service. Um, it's advanced equipment. Uh, uh, they have the advantage of uh, reducing the hospital stay, improving the recovery time, and it has also cosmetic uh, results as well. Um, 
So try leaning on your left foot if you can. To lean or not to lean? To lean, yeah. What do you mean here? Or like just, yeah, just, just put your weight on one hip, kind of, yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. yeah, but that's okay. Perfect. Yeah. And then, um, so, um, what surgeries, you told me, I guess you told me what surgeries this equipment will allow you to do, but can you describe them a bit more? Yeah, uh, it's basically minimal invasive surgeries uh, with camera which allow you to look uh, inside the uterus, allow you also to look inside the abdomen and pelvis. Uh, it helps in diagnosing uh, some pathologies, so also you can also treat some others. Yeah, we are providing health service for the population of, of, the, of uh, the whole population of Azraq camp. Uh, if you want to prioritize, yes, you start with the life-saving procedure, but with time, this population starts stabilizing, and they have other needs which need to be uh, also met. Uh, on the other hand, these problems, if we don't deal with them here, we have also to refer the patient outside to Amman or Zarqa, and this is... Uh, uh, has a lot of uh, effort on the patients, on their families, uh, because they are not allowed to go, the whole family. If they have kids, they will go, for example, the, the woman will go on her own, nobody will look after, or uh, if she can find somebody to look after her uh, children. So if she can have the service here inside with the same facilities, with the same resources, with just putting more effort into what we are doing, I think that's for uh, everybody. Yeah, so I think the most important takeaway point from that is no matter how um, the importance is that in a humanitarian crisis you can have outcomes that are, that are low and significant and promising for the future of the population of refugees that you're serving. Yeah, of course, uh, especially if, if you just put uh, the right uh, effort in it with the, with the right people, the right support from all our teams working with, uh, our donors, uh, our whole IMC uh, organizations, uh, the right equipment, and with you know, uh, encouraging people, good monitoring of the work, yeah, we are, I'm sure you can provide uh, a good service even in refugee setting. Thank you. Welcome. That's it? Yeah, that's it. And before he headed into the operating theater, I learned that he had actually worked in the hospitals in a small part of the UK near my fiance's parents. As he was holding his arms up and backed into the door into the operating theater, I realized what a small world it really is. I took the usual precautions, as always, when filming surgery. In this hospital, I was really grateful there were plenty of personal protective equipment, so I didn't feel the usual guilt as I do when I have to sacrifice a gown, cap, or mask just so I can capture some footage. I had waited all day to turn those cameras on, and as soon as I did, the thing that came into the focus was the fact that Dr. Hamsa wasn't wearing a mask. As we know now, masks are quite a topic of conversation. 
when you need to wear a mask, where you need to wear a mask, what the rates of infection are, are is actually something that has been debated by surgeons and researched for much longer than coronavirus has existed. I got the attention of a scrub nurse and whispered through my mask that maybe Dr. Hamsa forgot his mask. He had been so careful in scrubbing up. I didn't think he had intentionally begun the operation without a mask. The hierarchy and complexities in surgery often don't allow for a welcome channel of communication between staff members, and that was something I was very much aware of. As uncomfortable as it was, though, the nurse did go up to Dr. Hamsa and mention my concern. He very cheerfully called out to me across the entire room without missing a beat on his preparations. Lauren, you're concerned I don't have a mask on. Don't worry. It's been proven masks do not result in infection on laparoscopic surgeries. It's a good thing my face was covered. I appreciate there have been dozens of academic papers on topics like this, and I trust the research and science is absolutely right. But what I also know is that audiences watching what I capture in places far removed from here, and without that medical understanding, will be expecting a mask, or be casting judgment on whatever I film from that point forward. I wouldn't continue to debate the issue, or my real concerns for the camera. A patient was on the table and ready to receive this life-changing procedure, and that always comes first. So I did what any good camera person does when something is on camera that shouldn't be. I framed it out. That footage fell to the cutting room floor, not because I framed out the surgeon or because he wasn't wearing a mask, but mostly because I was there to focus on telling the story of midwives working in the hospital and giving new life. But I often think it's the stories of restoring life that are just as important to focus on. I wish I had more time to work that into the story or to make an entirely separate film on it. I suppose now this is something I can revisit through the archives. Watch the series I made for the European Union and International Medical Corps UK, as well as the full-length short film A Midwife's Oath on my YouTube page. It's best enjoyed with some falafel and a strong coffee. And that's it for today. Back next week with more from our correspondents. Do join us.